0: Good evening, Radio.
1: Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening on uh, WWW Block Talk Radio, The Gist of Freedom. The Gist of Freedom, G-I-S-T. Our producer is Ms. Gist, Leslie Gist. We are going to continue our discussion of the Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. The guest joining me this evening is Linda Mizell. Good evening, Linda.
2: Good evening.
1: And tell us a little bit about Linda.
2: Um, I am an educational historian, and my particular interest is uh, segregated African-American schools in the Jim Crow era, particularly in the South. I'm uh, on the faculty of the uh, School of Education at the University of Colorado Boulder.
1: Have you um, are you familiar with the book The Black Abolitionist, by Benjamin Quarles? Yes, I am. And what did you do your graduate and undergraduate work?
2: Um, my undergraduate work was at Mount Holyoke College in, um, in Western Massachusetts, and I earned my doctorate at the School of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University.
1: Tell us about the Rosenwald Schools.
2: Okay. Well, the Rosenwald. Um, initiative and began in uh, around 1914 or so um, as a a project initiated by Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee Institute, Um, and it was funded by Julius Rosenwald, who was the heir um, to the Sears Roebuck um, fortune and uh the idea initially was to, pro- to provide some funding to help support the efforts of African Americans in rural communities to build schools and uh the project grew over the next few years so by um um by the 1920s uh about uh, one in five schools in the south African American schools in the south had been built with some support from the Ro- Rosenwald fund uh, most of that support, however, actually came from the communities themselves that Rosenwald put up um, a sum, typically in the early years it was uh, 400 four or $500, but he put up a sum that varied from, um, from about one-sixth to one-third of the amount um, that was required to build the schools. Uh, at least one-third of that amount actually had to come from the community themselves, and typically African-American communities, in terms of raising money, in providing labor, in providing materials like lumber and so forth, provided a a significant amount uh, above and beyond the required uh, uh, commitment from them. And then uh, the commitment that came from the school uh, board, from the local school districts, uh, was to take over the schools and then to provide for their continued support. So that meant that the African-American communities who actually built these schools and provided most of the labor and resources then had to deed over the land, the building, uh, and everything that went with the school over to the school board for that support. And um, and most of the money that actually came from um, from the local school districts Uh, for the Rosenwald schools was black taxpayers' money. So in a sense, they were paying twice for uh, their support for the schools.
1: What can you tell us about uh, black schools during the Civil War?
2: Um, During the the Civil War, um, there were – well, let me back up and say that throughout the South, prior to – to the end of the civil war Uh, in most states it was illegal for african-americans to 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 learn to read or write Uh, it was a criminal offense for anyone to teach them and in some cases um, that applied to uh, to free blacks as well as enslaved african-americans but in every state it applied to enslaved african-americans but despite that despite the fact that it you know literally was risking life and limb in order to learn and read to read that African Americans did by you know a variety of means um make efforts to, to gain literacy and in um in some communities there were secret schools and, um um and there's an expression called pit schools um that means that they actually you know hollowed out a place where they would hide in order to conduct the schools in um in most um of the large cities uh throughout the south that there were some charity schools uh until some of those were outlawed and for instance after uh Matt turner's rebellion uh in eighteen thirty two um uh, many of the southern states um passed. excuse me I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah.
1: You mentioned TIP schools. Was that T I P and is that an acronym?
2: Yeah. T-I-T. P is in Paul IT. Oh, and what is that an acronym for? Uh, it's not an acronym. It it refers to like a pit a pit in the ground.
1: Oh, okay.
2: A pit in the ground. Mhm. Um that one of the, you know, one author who references it and this this is um is a a really incredible book that I encourage anybody who who's interested um to check it out is a book by Heather Andrea uh um Williams called um and then I go blank on the title of it. Um uh give me a moment and I'll come back to it. But she talks um she talks about um African American literacy um both be- um before and particularly right after the Civil War and um and so she uh, makes reference to the Pitt Schools. And I think I think that's probably the first time I'd ever seen that uh, references, but it's a, a fascinating one. But it referred to you know the schools actually having to be hidden, literally and figuratively having to be hidden.
1: What uh, What effect did Nat Turner's rebellion have on schools?
2: Oh, it had a tremendous effect, not not just on schools, because and and let me add one more thing to to this particular context that in prior to the Civil War um in the in the southern states that in most cases there was very little public uh, education available to uh to anybody who was poor that so there were uh, most of the southern states did not have um an adequately functioning public school system the southerners were um were resistant to funding public education. And so very few communities uh, had public schools even for white kids in the South. And um, and so certainly there was an, an issue about providing schools for African Americans, and the few that were available, like I said, typically were charity schools. Um, but the impact of, of Nat Turner's rebellion on not so much on schools, but on literacy, on African Americans' uh, access to to learning to read and write, or even if they had developed those skills to to being able to show that were um, were legislated against in every southern state after that turner's rebellion, the fact that uh, Turner could read and write um, that um, that a number of the leaders of uh, of the insurrection okay, and of some others in the past uh, were literate and that that actually enabled them to, to more effectively organize um, and um the, and the fact that even further earlier than that um, um that anti uh, anti-slavery literature abolitionist literature that was coming from the north um was uh was seen as having an impact on um on encouraging slaves to enslaved african americans to revolt um all of that contributed to the sense that literacy that had always been seen as dangerous for African Americans, really now is proven to be uh, extremely dangerous, uh, and so uh, so every Southern state passed that didn't already have uh, anti-literacy uh, law embedded in their um, in their slave codes enacted legislation to make that so, so that it became a criminal offense um, throughout the South in every state for African Americans to read or write or for anyone to teach them to read and write.
1: Okay. And that brings up the um, question in terms of the literacy and the myth out there that the Bible was used to enslave black folks, but probably just the opposite was true.
2: It Well, um, one of the justifications for slavery, as we know, was that it allowed, uh, for christianizing african americans that is that um that it was the, the duty and obligation of slaveholders to um to christianize their slaves and in the early years of uh of slavery on this continent um uh, part of that understanding of that obligation was that the in that these enslaved africans needed to learn to read and write so that they could uh read the bible and um that quickly became a problem. Um, by 1719, um, in South Carolina, for instance, um, there, we see the first legislation that makes it um, a criminal offense for African Americans to read and write, and that came out of some of the challenges that they were seeing. There's a, um, a number of letters of missionaries reporting back to the Home Office in London about that about that particular dilemma, uh, that once they re- teach the slaves to read and write, then they don't just read the parts that they want them to read. They read other things. They bring their own interpretation to it, and they particularly look at issues around injustice. And so the solution that they began to propose to slave owners was rather than teaching them to read and write, that they teach them the Bible verses by rote uh, so that they wouldn't have access to the parts that, w- that weren't favorable to or couldn't be seen as favorable to the institution of slavery.
1: Yes, and uh, a number of uh, uh, rebels back in the day, uh, Harriet Tubman, Matt Turner, uh, John Brown, uh, read uh, the Bible and quoted the Bible quite extensively in their in their work,
2: absolutely, and in fact in um I- I- even in public schools in other parts of the country in the north, for instance, that up until uh um, the mid eighteen hundreds that the Bible was the primary uh text of instruction in all schools. That it wasn't until uh, until the the uh, mid 1800s, for instance, that we began to see other kinds of textbooks that are specifically designed to be used in schools. And so, um, so for everybody, the Bible was the primary text. But for African Americans, they, they, we found a particular comfort and some particular messages that resonated around our desires for freedom. And you know, and and I think it's safe to say, and in fact, a number of people have talked about. This idea of um, of learning of literacy as a divine right, and um, and the equation of literacy and liberation, education, literacy uh, are freedom, and freedom is is learning, and that's a recurrent theme in so many of the works that we read. And Frederick Douglass, for instance, talking about literacy being uh, one of the things that um, that made him free. And so, yeah. uh, and so, this connection to the Bible as an instrument of of liberation, you know, of uh, a message of freedom, um, is, you know, has it's, it's been central to African American narratives for, you know, as long as we've been creating African American narratives on on this soil.
1: And and that narrative, how did, um, how was the Bible used in schools and reference to morality? In the schools.
2: Mm. Um, you mean particularly for African Americans, or in general?
1: African Americans uh, uh, specifically, particularly as used by uh, slave owners and
2: mm. uh,
1: of that ilk.
2: Okay. Well, slave owners, of course, only you know only um, talked about um, the passages. That could be interpreted as being in slave in in um in support of, of slavery, you know servants obey your masters, and so forth, but again that's where African Americans themselves um took those stories um particularly the old testament stories okay and and you know and re- re envisioned those. As stories of liberation that applied not only to, you know, to the Old Testament days to the children um, of um, um, to, to the Hebrews, but saw them as, you know, narratives of their own experience. Now, that certainly wasn't something that the slave owners were encouraging them to do. Okay. but um but certainly they saw them saw those stories as messages of hope around their own liberation that they saw parallels with what they were experiencing and what the children of Israel were experiencing, and then we know of course how how those same stories got translated into um into the spirituals into the into the, the songs that served as um you know as a code. For uh, for the folks who were escaping slavery, he passed on messages uh, that um, go down Moses um, that could that if the slave owners were listening, that all they were hearing was you know a, a sad um, a spiritual uh, song about the um, about the Hebrews, but in fact was being used to announce the fact that Harriet Tubman was on her way.
1: Yes, are you still there?
2: Yes, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I did, I thought I lost you there for a minute Also, um, getting back to that uh, morality In terms uh, in the black schools Where uh, paddling um, became justified Because of, you know, the quote in the Bible Spare the rod, spoil the child So that was used as a a justification for paddling Would that be true?
2: Um yeah I, yeah I think that's true. Uh I mean absolutely that that was was um was a common, you know, common reference. But again, paddling was part of the culture, not just in schools, but everywhere And um that the United States, you know, was has typically been a violent culture. And uh, at the risk of going a little bit off on a tangent, okay, that, um, when, that one of the complaints about indigenous peoples, um, Native American peoples, was, uh, the sense among Europeans that they did not discipline their children because there was little use of, um, of corporal punishment, or other kind of harsh disciplinary actions. And so, um, and so often when, um, um, when Europeans would be, would begin schools that were designed for the indigenous people, then one of the things that they insisted on was corporal punishment for almost any offense, because they felt that that was an important part of civilizing um, indigenous people to to impose this idea of harsh corporal corporal punishment on them. Okay, and so and you know and we know. About the brutality of slavery, you know, the, um, the uh, whipping in response to you know to any perceived offense, and so corporal, corporal punishment so ingrained in U.S. culture, and um, and certainly uh, that you know would translate into you know into the educational spheres.
1: Okay, and before um, we go into our clip, I want to go back to the Rosenwald Schools, and they were named after Julius Rosenwald mm-hmm. and was he and what was his uh what was his involvement well you talked about his involvement but who was he mm-hmm.
2: he was the heir to the Rosenwald fortune i mean i'm sorry he was the heir to the Sears roebuck uh, fortune and uh, he was one of uh, of a number of of northern white philanthropists um who created you know, foundations in the early in the, the late um uh nineteenth and early twentieth century to um to in a sense control the direction of African American education. Um he um, among those other northern philanthropists was a major benefactor of Booker T. Washington and, and um and the Tuskegee machine and virtually all the funding for um for public education and and for many um, of the historically black colleges and universities you know in that period had to come through um uh Booker T washington and so rosenwald and and um you know and and these other philanthropists really on one hand were promoting the idea that education should be available to african american communities i mean um, when you think about um the the state of, of uh, public education uh for anybody much less African Americans after the civil war um that you know when um over 90% of the African American population in the south was illiterate one of the first priorities of African Americans uh at the end of slavery was to build schools okay uh that that so much of the resources of the community, people who couldn't afford, you know, to to spare money for this, put money and effort into creating these schools and to providing teachers for them and so forth. And, in fact, those freedmen schools became the foundation um, for the public school systems uh, throughout the South, that the systems themselves were built on the backs of those first schools. And it took a while, in fact, to get uh, white southerners on board for the idea that these schools needed to, uh, the public schools needed to be available, that there needed to be compulsory attendance, that the state should supply um, uh, resources like textbooks and so forth. And so this was an effort, you know, the universal schooling was an effort um, on behalf of African Americans that had a benefit for everybody throughout the South. And so very quickly in the process of of trying to create these school systems, these philanthropists came in, and while on one hand they're providing resources, they're also resisting the idea um, that the education should be anything beyond the Tuskegee model that was essentially uh, menial labor, Um, and that African Americans should be educated and socialized around uh, being prepared to work uh, but that they should should not be involved in politics, that they should uh, not agitate around social equality, and that that was and the intention was to create these schools that would reinforce those messages. And so while there's you know, while there's a lot that can be said about um uh, positively about the effect of, of these philanthropies on um creating the buildings, providing funding and source, they also were you know worked really hard to control what kind of education went on in those buildings.
1: Linda, let me ask you about the Brown decision and what impact did that have on the closure of the Rosenwald schools and after you give that response, we're going to go into our clip.
2: Okay, and I would say that the the answer to that is is much broader than just the Rosenwald schools, uh, because remember Rosenwald was was um, uh, funding was a catalyst for um, for building that impacted about 20 percent of all the schools in the South. So that leaves 80 you know 80 percent of of the other schools that were not Rosenwald schools. Now, way back um, in the 30s uh there was serious debate uh um, um among african american intellectuals in particular okay about whether it was um uh, whether there should be support for for separate african american schools the language at the time referred to them as separate schools okay and um wb du bois was one who argued vehemently that the Negro did need to maintain these institutions, that it was important that uh, that we build, create, support uh, African-American institutions. But the uh, other African-American uh, intellectuals and political leaders and so forth were adamant about pursuing the path um, that they thought would lead us to integration. Um, you know, by the 1950s, we'd begun to refer to it as desegregation, understanding that this was a process. Okay, um, um, but they, but they believed that by pursuing this path, that um, that once we got um, black and white kids sitting in the same classroom, that in the course of a decade, all vestiges of uh, of racism, of inequality, would disappear. Okay, um, that was a very different. Um, Argument than than what most grassroots African Americans and a handful of intellectuals like Du Bois believed. They worried about what would be lost uh, in the process of desegregation, deseg- and school leaders in particular um, were were concerned about that. Um, that the um, the uh, that one of the phrases that emerged among the associations of colored teachers um, was um, was second-class integration. Um, and once Brown, once the court decided in '54 on um, on the Brown decision and declared that that segregation was inherently unequal, uh, they were still left with the question of how to move from that kind of philosophical position to the actual process of desegregating schools. And um, and there wasn't a plan in place that, that nobody had really figured out a process for doing that. And so a decision was made to actually put those decisions into the hands of local school boards. Well, these are the folks who you know who were um maintaining segregation and inequality in the first place and so not surprisingly, one of the things one of the first things that happened was that african- historically African American schools were shut down very few black high schools survived. Um, the 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 uh the transition to desegregation and in the process um the 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 core of african american teachers and administrators and other education professionals was was devastated in south carolina for i mean sorry north carolina alone for instance over um a period of less than a decade um That the number of African American uh, elementary school principals went from, um, I think, initially about 620 in 1963, to seven years later to three in the entire state, and that was, you know, that was fairly um, typical of what happened throughout the South. Uh, In the schools themselves, although the schools were desegregated in terms of of um, the numbers of students that the patterns of inequity were reconstituted within those schools. So in terms of of tracking, uh, white kids in the higher uh, tracks, African-American kids in the vocational or general education tracks, in terms of disproportionate disciplinary actions, you know, high rates of suspension and so forth, Disproportionate referrals to special education uh, for African American kids. So, through a range of um, of actions within the schools, that very quickly schools, the desegregated schools, were resegregated within their walls. Now, um, in the you know in the um, the more than 50 years since then, what we've seen now is is um, uh, in urban schools in particular uh, that the schools overall are as segregated as they uh they were schools now are as segregated as they were in nineteen seventy when uh, desegregation began first began in earnest and no, so one so one of the um one of the um the casualties of desegregation for us is that now we've we had the schools now that schools have been resegregated, so we now have resegregation we still have some of the same patterns of in, inequity around the schools, but we have lost those infrastructures under which African American schools were able to achieve excellence even under the harshest conditions of segregation
1: well there in the uh, early nineteen hundreds and this is the last question before we get to our clip in the early nineteen hundreds were there laws uh made available that segregated schools could voluntarily integrate
2: uh, oh, well the the, the laws were different in in each state okay at uh, at the turn of the century um in you know in the south that every southern state uh, mandated to segregate the separate school systems um and in and uh and every state had its own take on what that looked like in terms of the teachers' court in in the state of Florida, you know my home state um that uh florida was was the the um the first state to pass uh, what were referred to as anti miscegenation school laws that made it illegal um for um for white uh teachers to teach in black schools and vice versa. Of course none of the vice versa was happening. That there weren't black teachers teaching in the white schools, but it made it illegal for um for white teachers to teach in black schools. And um and but uh and another a similar kind of that first law that was passed in the eighteen eighties was declared unconstitutional and it was actually ridiculed in northern newspapers. A similar law was passed and held uh in um in uh, uh about 20 years later and so um in the early 1900s with rare exception um that that african americans were segregated in schools and that includes most of the north too that even though in the north and the west that um, that segregation was not legally mandated in the schools that um that vast majority of students did go to segregated schools
1: are you familiar with the Bera uh, School in Kentucky?
2: Um, no, I'm not.
1: B e r e a.
2: Oh, Berea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Okay. Uh, and that was, you know, that was one of the few schools that, you know, um, that um, operated on, you know, on a multiracial basis that included African Americans.
1: Okay. And our other guest is Jean Libby.
0: That's correct.
1: That's who I'm talking to, and you are a John Brown historian.
0: Yes, I am. I'm very inspired uh, by Professor Quarles, uh, with whom I had a a direct relationship, although I never met him personally. It was by telephone interview and letter.
1: Oh, I see. Uh, So, what was your take? Did you hear most of the tape? Yes, that was played, Miss Living. Yes. And what was your take on um my impression all my notes uh majority of my notes here are about john Brown um, seems that um Harper's Ferry was not his first uh venture into armed resistance or using or the use of violence on behalf of the abolitionist movement. What can you tell us about that?
0: well that's correct because in in springfield uh massachusetts in uh in 1850 john brown organized the league of gileadites and uh he did this uh through uh primarily an african american church in springfield and uh he and his family his his wife mary uh attended this church and uh they they knew the people And John Brown organized uh, resistance uh, to the Fugitive Slave Law. Uh, If someone came to your door, uh, you were supposed to help them. And uh, if someone came to your door then, in order to seize them, uh, people were supposed to have pots of boiling water or even oil. On the second floor, that they could pour down onto, onto the street.
1: Oh, yeah! Used to see that in those medieval movies. Um,
0: yes, well, John John Brown had seen them too.
1: Yeah. So, who were they? What is exactly the Gileadites? What was
0: the Gileadites?
1: Gileadites, yes.
0: Yeah. Oh, um, they were uh, primarily members of what is called the Free Church in uh in in Massachusetts and I would suggest if people want to know more um uh, about the uh John Brown's life in Massachusetts and the League of Gileadites um that you refer to the book Fire from the Midst of You A Religious Life of John Brown by uh Louis A. DeCaro Junior Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, th- th- this is really uh he knows the people, he's uh studied the sources, and we find the relationship of Brown uh to this group uh through uh through Reverend Degar. He's also a minister as well as a uh, a, a professor and we find it uh in this book.
1: I see. Professor Mizell, what would you like to uh, bring up in terms of discussion about the clip we just heard.
2: Um well one of the the um first references at the beginning of the reading um quoted um Robert Morris of Boston. And um and then later on there was discussion of, of Charles Sumner, the CEO. and um earlier in the conversation, you know, I talked about the prevalence of segregation in schools in um in the north. Um and um and so both of those men played an important role in um you know, in the in the debate over segregated schools in the eighteen hundreds. Uh in fact in eighteen forty eight that they were the two lawyers that represented um um the Roberts family, uh Benjamin Roberts, uh, on behalf of his daughter Sarah and several other plaintiffs that um that uh, brought a suit against the the Boston schools uh, board, because of the conditions of segregated schools and because of their, their unwillingness to to admit colored students, including Sarah Roberts, to any of the white schools and that case failed um, the court in favor of the, of the school board uh but a few years later in eighteen fifty eight i mean sorry in eighteen fifty five um the the state legislature uh ruled segregation illegal. But even though um the that um in technically segregation was illegal in Massachusetts that um that we know that segregation actually continued. And so that's a good example of um of kind of what was happening in terms of education in you know, in the in the um presumably free north, that although by law African Americans had the right in most places in um in the north to attend mixed schools, that in practice the vast majority were in segregated schools. And one of the uh, dramatic differences between northern school segregation and southern school segregation, at the north the the students for the most part had white teachers, whereas in the uh, the segregated south both the students and the teachers who taught them were African-Americans, which meant that there was a very different kind of climate um uh, um around um uh how the students and viewed themselves and their teachers.
1: You mentioned uh, Charles Sumner.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, is there more you can tell us about that deep down that he uh, sustained there in Congress? That wasn't
2: uh, in it? Yes, and um, and for for the folks who've seen Lincoln, um uh, Sumner was was only you know he only had a couple of lines he only showed up very briefly I think it was in the scene where there was a party at the White House and he was escorting Mrs. Lincoln in but he was actually a major player alongside uh Thaddeus Stevens um uh in as as, as one as a, a a voice for abolition and against slavery and um and um the the beating that he received um was I mean he he nearly died from it, and uh, and it was just an example of the kind of violence you know that went on in the halls of of, of Congress, that when uh, when Preston was beating Sumner, um, several, um, that a, a number of of other um, uh, congressmen that were attempting to 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 go to Sumner's aid were held back by friends of Preston, and so this is on the floor of Congress, you know so. Um, Yes. So the the debate over slavery was was not just a verbal debate. It was a violent, you know, violent confrontation. Um uh, and so those who criticized John Brown for taking a, um, you know, to, for taking a violent approach to to trying to end slavery ignored the the fact that the that the institution itself was brutal and that those who were defending slavery had no hesitation around employing violence.
0: Can, can can I can I say something about oh, John uh, Brown and, and Charles Sumner?
1: Yes, by all means. Did they ever meet?
0: Yes. Yes, they did.
1: Okay, go ahead.
0: All right. When on May twenty second, eighteen fifty six, which is uh, the day that the uh, that the beating took place, and this is the only time. That this kind of thing has occurred on the floor of Congress. Um, John Brown was in Kansas, and Kansas was a uh, in a state of war, uh, whether or not it would be a free state or a slave state. And there's been a lot of controversy over whether or not John Brown had heard the word that senator. Sumner had been beaten on the floor, and that that is one of the provocations for his reprisal murder of pro-slavery settlers who had threatened his life on the Pottawatomie Creek in May 24, 1856. I I, I guess you've heard about the, the Pottawatomie Massacre.
1: What, did that happen on the Missouri or Kansas side? Kansas. Kansas? Kansas. And he also helped some uh, slaveholders in the state of Missouri, didn't he? Didn't he execute um, mm-hmm. 11 slaveholders? No, he freed 11 slaves, but I believe he murdered their slaveholders. you know what year that was? Uh,
0: that's not quite correct.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: yeah, all right. Um uh, the people who were murdered on the Pottawatomie Creek in May 24th, 1856, the night of May 24th to May 25th, were part of a court who had taken out death warrants uh, toward uh, John Brown and the settlement, the Free State Settlement, and the... uh, They were indeed murdered on the Pottawatomie Creek. And what I've recently found is that he did have the word that Senator Sumner had been beaten on the floor of Congress. And his son, who was one of the murderers, uh, said that it drove his father crazy to hear this, to hear about this beating. Now the other one that you're talking about is called the Missouri Rescue, and that happens in 1858. There's a lot that's been going on between 1856
1: and 1858.
0: Oh, I see. Yes,
1: and and so what
0: happens? What happens in 1858 is that a slave in Missouri is able to get word to John Brown in Kansas that he needs help. He wants to escape, and he wants to escape with his wife, who is pregnant, and he wants to escape with some others. And so John Brown and one other man come into Missouri, and they free these people, and they uh, walk them and wagon them a thousand miles to Canada. And this is between December 1858 and January 1859. And the only slaveholder who is killed is by one of Brown's associates, who later goes to Harper's Ferry, Aaron Stevens. And when they are going to the cabin to free this individual, and his wife, uh, the slaveholder comes and moves for his gun, and he is killed.
1: Okay. Getting back to um, Charles Sumner and that beatdown that he took on the floor of Congress, wasn't it a common practice that congressmen would bring guns to the floor uh, of the Congress and that Sumner's speech uh, indicated how barbaric he thought uh, gun toting, gun carrying was, and that's what uh, enraged the slaveholders there and contributed to that uh, reason for the beatdown.
0: Um, I have no knowledge of this. Uh, what I do have knowledge of is that um, Senator Sumner uh, attacked. The relative of the man who the Congressman from South Carolina, who beat him on the floor, and this relative was a senator rather than a representative and uh and so this attack um it's a verbal attack it's not nothing to do with guns and uh and this attack is what uh, Enraged, uh, Sen uh, Representative Preston Brooks, and he decided to settle the, uh, the incident by beating, uh, uh, Senator Sumner on, on the floor of Congress. He was pinned, uh, under his desk because he was still sitting at his desk after he gave his four hour speech, uh, the crime against Kansas. And so Representative Brooks was able to uh, beat him to uh, near death. Uh, But there's no guns involved.
1: Okay, yeah, no guns involved in that particular incident. But uh, Professor uh, Mazel, have you ever heard that uh, gun toting was pretty common in the halls of Congress during
2: that time? Um, I I can't cite a particular su- source, but that was my understanding that that, that it was fairly common. Uh
1: huh. And that was probably a result of the fugitives uh, that had been passed in 1850. Um, you think that might have contributed to the fact that everybody started toting or packing, as we say.
2: Um. I my assumption would be that that it wasn't. You know that. It, had less to do with with um, um, the 1850s fugitive Slave Act than it did with the fact that, that that was pretty much normal at that time, that folks carried guns. <laughs> yeah, but, that,
1: but not in the halls of Congress. I mean, that was a surreptitious carrying of guns out west in Lawrence, Kansas, Bleeding Kansas, and
2: further I west,
1: think- the Badlands.
2: I, no, I don't think it was that unusual for gentlemen to carry guns in that period.
1: Okay. Okay, so that, uh, we can assume then that that was a common practice within the halls of Congress.
2: I think pretty much a common practice everywhere.
1: Yeah. Very well, well said. Um, Liberty, you know anything about there was this, I got a question mark here in my notes about a John Brown holiday, and they talked about a, a martyr day. Uh, which apparently happened uh, or was celebrated within two or three days of his death. Was there any ever any effort to establish uh, a John Brown
0: holiday? Well, this occurred within uh, the African-American community and culture. Uh, the day of his uh, execution was December 2nd, and uh, for many many years thereafter many generations thereafter december 2nd has been uh uh has been recognized as martyrs day in honor of john brown and also the african americans and uh white uh supporters of his raid who were uh, who were executed on december 16th but they were included in this December second Martyr's Day.
1: I see. I was also impressed with the statement uh, right after uh Christmas Addicts uh assassination and uh this theme of black beautiful and um uh, the statement made nature exhausted herself when it came to white man. Uh, did you pick up on that, Professor? And if so, what were your thoughts on that? Did it resonate with you?
2: Um, which of us, which, was, uh, which
0: professor you... are you asking?
1: Well, they, uh, the theme, um, and I believe it was after uh, Christmas Attics, uh, uh fell during the revolution, and that there was uh, talk about a monument and that sort of thing. And, um, there was a movement uh started where the theme was "Black is beautiful amongst the eyes and someone made the contact or comment that nature must have exhausted herself when she made the white man and um uh, kind of brought to mind some of the earlier uh, uh talk in the movement here in the United States. I was just wondering if you'd heard that uh during the piece, and if you had a, a thought about it,
0: Professor Marcel. I leave that entirely to you. I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> that one to you okay
1: <laughs> okay, um getting back to um what was going on in Congress in terms of any incidents of violence um Uh, Leslie is going to post on her page an excerpt from Sumner's speech. Um, And I guess within that speech, uh, Sumner talks about uh, some of the incidents within Congress that he was concerned about. Uh, There was a Mr. Benton who rose an objection uh, to what uh, the subject of Mr. Sumner had brought up, um, but he had no weapons of any kind in his hand, and uh, anyone interested in that, uh, the Gist of Freedom uh, will be posted on that uh, page, uh, Leslie Gist, our producer's page. Uh, there was also a Mr. Foot. Uh Someone on the committee started advancing towards him and uh, and he drew from his pocket a five-chambered revolver, fully loaded, and cocked. And there was a Mr. Benton who suggested friends uh, that they should return to their seats uh, when he had noticed that the pistol had been drawn. And, of course, uh, Mr Sumner was without more uh, arms he notified uh, his colleagues that he was unarmed uh etc uh, after a while both senators uh, resumed their seats and order was restored so there was an incident drew from his pocket a five chambered revolver fully loaded cocked. um uh, does that bring up any thoughts, ladies? Are you there? Did I lose
2: you? Uh, other, than, other than affirming what we said before about <laughs> about the level of violence, um, you know, related to the debate over slavery and that congressmen carry
0: guns, mm-hmm. and and for me, I'm in, I'm entirely. Uh, at a loss about this because my field is John Brown uh and not Senator Sumner and Professor Quarles and the influence that he had on me in in my research and writing about African Americans and John Brown. And so this thread uh, kinda kinda leaves me uh uh out.
2: I would I would echo that.
1: Well, uh, getting back to John Brown in terms of uh, Harper's Ferry, uh, uh, the failure there at Harper's Ferry, was that a lack of military experience, as indicated by the piece, do you think, Libby?
0: Yes. And, and in fact, I have uh, a a reference from uh, Professor Quarles uh, for this, kind of a, a joking reference because um the uh the various historians you know go on and on about uh what were his plan you know what was his plan and and what was this and that and uh in his view uh and in mine as well is the what he had in mind and also what Frederick Douglass recognized uh was not workable and so what I've researched and very much inspired uh by Professor Quarles uh is about the uh, uh the involvement of African Americans with John Brown, even in this quixotic uh idea. And Shield Green, who is uh with Frederick Douglass at the time that John Brown says, now is the time we've got to invade Harper's Ferry and we've got to take hostages, and uh, it's going to be all right because uh, we'll be able to negotiate our way out with the hostages. And Douglas says, that's not going to happen. And But Shields Green, who is a fugitive who has been living with Douglas, and who has met Brown before and knows his plan, and he's there in Pennsylvania in August. This is before October, 1859. Shields Green says, I believe I'll go with the old man. And that's what I write about.
1: I see. Well, uh, in reference to John Brown, and did he really rely on gr- guns, and is it actually true that he made his own guns? Did mm. you heard, Has that come up in your research?
0: He didn't make his own guns, but what he made was a self-defense weapon for uh, enslaved people and for people in Kansas. Uh, they were called pikes, and these pikes are his own design and invention.
1: Okay, and now what was that called? Excuse me, what was that called? Did you say pike? pike.
0: Pike, B-I-K-E. B-I-K-E. Uh, B-I-K-E, John Brown's Pikes.
1: Okay, John Brown's Pike, P I K E. go ahead.
0: Now, on June 2nd, 1856, this is a couple weeks after the uh, murders of the people who have threatened him with death on the Pottawatomie Creek, uh, there's an... Uh, an what is concerned, what is considered the first battle of the Civil War, if you believe that the Civil War started in Kansas, which I do. And this is the Battle of Blackjack. And there are forces on the field which are representing the federal government and they're also representing, uh, slaveholders because the two were the same in 1856. And so John Brown is able to defeat uh, these forces, and one of them, Henry Clay Pate, has a knife, and it's what we call a bowie knife. And he takes this knife, and uh, that's one of his spoils of war, and uh, he designs uh, a weapon which has the bowie knife as a handle, And the bottom is a hole. And so uh, he takes this design to Connecticut and he tries to get a thousand of them uh, made in in Connecticut with this design. Now, uh, the knife is continued to be carried by Brown and it's captured in the engine house by Jeb Stewart, who is going to become a Confederate general, but at the time that Brown is captured he and by he and Robert E. Lee, they're both in the United States Army. And this Bowie knife, which is the model for the pikes, is in the museum at the uh, Virginia Historical Society. I'm serious.
1: Okay, yes, I believe you are. Yeah. So, uh, I would like to uh, end it here. We're out of time. Um, Professor, do you have any closing remarks, a word or two?
2: Which, Professor? (laughs) We're together. <laughs> oh, well, I'll just say a, a couple of things to follow up. Um, earlier I, uh, um, I mentioned a book by uh, Henry, uh, Andrea, Heather Andrea Williams that I couldn't recall the title of at the time. It's self-taught. And we were discuss- discussing that um, in reference to the pit schools that I described where uh, where enslaved African Americans would actually build, dig out pits in the woods and hold secret schools there um and um um in reference to your question about weapons on the on, on the floor of Congress, I googled it while we were talking, and uh, apparently uh we were correct that it w- was fairly common for senators and congressmen, particularly in the eighteen thirties, forties, and fifties uh to carry weapons into congress and and frequently used them. And uh, a couple of sources have said that it, that primarily southern congressmen, uh, in these intense debates about slavery, were um, were fairly inclined to to threaten and in some cases carry out acts of violence uh, stemming from the the debate over slavery. I see. That included and- guns, Bowie knives, and and uh, other weapons. Not my area of expertise, but I thought it was an interesting <laughs> note. <laughs> and uh,
1: Professor Libby, was there a school at Harper's Ferry?
0: After uh the Civil War there was a school established called Storer College. And uh it's a very uh it was indeed established uh for African Americans and uh, certainly had a lot of influence uh, with uh, the whole John Brown event. And I don't know, Professor Marcel, was this a Rosenwald school at first, or a um, college?
2: Um, not that I'm aware of. That The Rosenwald schools, for the most part, were established in the 1920s, and the majority of them were elementary schools. Uh, A few county training schools that that eventually, um, most of them eventually became high schools, but mostly concentrated in the Deep South.
1: Okay, we're going to move to the clip. Uh, The uh, reading of the Benjamin Quarles book, Black Abolitionists. We've covered quite a number of subjects. Uh, The women's involvement in the abolitionist movement, uh, the controversy over political rights versus freedom from slavery, which was seen as uh, social rights, and the white abolitionists wanted to curtail political rights. Mm-hmm. A lot of discussion was had on the fugitive slave laws. The first one developed in 1792 or passed in 1792, and the second in 1850 where it made it illegal for anyone to house any uh, slave who had escaped from the South. Um, We've talked about and read about um, the black rescues, uh, uh, Mm Shadrach, Price, uh, Christiana up in Pennsylvania, uh, and so on. And also that 1850 um, Fugilist slave Law required a number of blacks um, of that day to flee the United States. Some went to Europe, some went to Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Tonight, um, we're probably going to hear a little bit about John Brown and about uh, black militant abolitionists um, in addition to black institutions such as schools and churches, etc. Okay, so, um, and for those of you that are listening, if you want to join in our conversation after the clip, you can get to us at 347 Three two four five 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 two. I think we're ready to go with the clip.
3: Black abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles, continued. Cassette seven, side one.
1: Good evening, and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom State. This show is produced by a acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist
3: The Taney decision took the center stage at the Convention of the Colored Citizens of Massachusetts, held at New Bedford on August 2, 1858. Robert Morris said that the decision should be trampled upon, and that he doubted whether the Massachusetts courts would enforce it. Joshua B. Smith, who in 1847 had fled from his North Carolina master, told the gathering that he could not respect a Supreme Court that would so infamously take from him his rights. Charles Lennox Remond, a more practiced denouncer, proclaimed that he was prepared to spit upon the ruling by Judge Taney. He wanted no long resolution, added Remond, only a short one saying that we defy the Dred Scott decision. The wrought-up Remond was far from finished he moved that a committee be appointed to prepare an address to the slaves inviting them to rebel. He said that he did not wish to see the people on the platform turn pale at his proposal, but to rise and talk. The first person to rise was Josiah Henson, made famous as the man after whom Mrs. Stowe had modeled her chief character, Uncle Tom. Henson said that he doubted that the time was right for such a step. As for turning pale... Henson declared that he had never turned pale in his life. Father Henson is a very black man. Added the reporter parenthetically in a thrust at Remond's courage. Henson voiced the opinion that if the shooting time came, Remond would be found out of the question when Remond was able to get the floor again, he denied that he would skulk in time of danger. He only regretted that he had not a spear with which he could transfix all the slaveholders at once. Following a spirited discussion, the Remond proposal was voted down by a small majority. A convention of New England Negroes meeting in Boston in August 1859 called the decision of Taney and his slaveholding associates a disregard for all historical verity, a defiant contempt of state sovereignty and a wanton perversion of the Constitution. The speeches by Garrison, Remond, Loguen, John S. Rock, and others were all characterized by a radical anti-slavery sentiment. Although, according to a Negro weekly, an allusion to colored barbers and their refusal to shave men of their own complexion produced a little discordance. The most novel and long-continued means of protesting the Dred Scott decision took place in Boston, where, beginning in 1858, Negro abolitionists held a Crispus Attucks Day. The first to die in the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770, Attucks had impeccable credentials as a martyr for American liberty. Others might forget him, but not black Bostonians. In 1851, seven of them... Including William C. Nell and Lewis Hayden, had sent an unsuccessful petition to the state legislature asking that $1,500 be appropriated for the erection of a monument to the memory of Attucks. The meeting held at Faneuil Hall on March 5, 1858, in protest to the Taney decision, was a feast of sight and sound. The hall was decorated for the occasion. In front of the speaker's rostrum was an exhibit of Revolutionary War relics, which included a small cup allegedly owned by Attucks, a picture of Washington crossing the Delaware in which Black Prince Whipple was seen pulling the stroke oar, and a banner presented by Governor John Hancock to a Negro military company, the Bucks of America. The meeting was graced by original songs, one of them by Charlotte Fortin, who journeyed from Salem to be on hand. A hymn by Francis Ellen Watkins, Freedom's Battle, was delivered by the Attucks Glee Club. This youthful quintet included Edward M. Bannister and George L. Ruffin, both destined for fame, one as a painter and the other as a judge. With William C. Nell presiding, the speakers included Theodore Parker, Garrison, Phillips, and John S. Rock. A letter was read from Thomas Wentworth Higginson lauding the role played by Negroes in the slave rescue cases in Boston and divulging that the first man to enter the courthouse door in an attempt to rescue Anthony Burns was a Negro, contrary to general supposition. In his speech, Wendell Phillips outdid himself as far as his predominantly Negro audience was concerned. After glorifying Attucks, he urged his black listeners to show valor in life so that when their deeds became known, people would say, Oh, yes, they have always been a brave, gallant people. Was there not an addicts in Seventy? Of the speeches, the most militant came from John S. Rock. Refuting the charge that the Negro was docile, he predicted that sooner or later the clashing of arms will be heard in this country and the black man's services will be needed. The race-conscious rock also recurred to the theme that black was beautiful. When I contrast the fine, tough, muscular system, the rich, beautiful color, the full, broad features of the negro with the delicate physical organization, wan color, and lank hair of the Caucasian, I am inclined to believe that when the white man was created, nature was pretty well exhausted. The 5th of March commemorations would be held in Boston every year until the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870. Eighteen years later, the city and state authorities appropriated a total of $13,000 to erect a Crispus Attucks monument on the Boston Common. In 1932, as a result of the efforts of Boston Negroes, the Massachusetts legislature passed an act ordering the governor to issue annually a proclamation calling for a proper observance of March 5th of the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. The annual observance of Crispus Attucks Day had begun in 1858 as a protest against the Dred Scott decision. But its meaning was far more of an affirmation than of a remonstrance. For it was an evidence that the spirit of the American Revolution, of which Attucks was a conspicuous symbol, was still alive, not having run its course by 1858 or, as it turned out, by 1888 or 1932. Throughout the North, the strong denunciation of the Dred Scott decision did much to raise the threshold of incipient violence. Certainly among Negroes, the spirit of militancy became more pervasive and insistent. At a convention of Ohio Negroes in 1858, William H. Day, after reviewing the plight of the colored people, declared that resistance by force of arms was their right and duty. John I. Gaines, a boat storekeeper from Cincinnati, criticized Day as being impractical, Negroes being a weak, enslaved, and ignorant people. But however impractical, Negro public speakers were preparing their addresses around highly militant figures and themes. James T. Hawley, lauded Toussaint L'Ouverture, Haitian liberator, in a speech entitled The Auspicious Dawn of Negro Rule. Ollie ended his lecture with the assertion that it was far better that his sable countrymen should be dead free men than living slaves. J. Sella Martin, pastor of the Joy Street Baptist Church in Boston, drew large audiences for his prepared address on a Baptist exhorter of an earlier day, Nat Turner, Blunt-spoken William J. Watkins toured the abolitionist circuit with a lecture on the irrepressible conflict. The new climate of impending physical confrontation inevitably produced its own energizers. Of the abolitionist figures thrust up by the undercurrents of violence, one stands in a class by himself, John Brown of Osawatomie. To Brown, slavery itself was a species of warfare demanding a counter-resort to arms. Brown's daring sweep into Virginia in October 1859, his capture and his execution, constituted a national shock from which there would be no recovery. Abolitionists, hitherto of a pacifist orientation, found reason to reverse themselves as the whole atmosphere became charged. Brown's relationships with Negroes had been close, continuous, and on a peer basis a pattern which no other white reformer could boast. Apparently no Negro who ever knew Brown ever said anything in criticism of his attitude or behavior toward colored people. Brown's attitude toward slavery and his grim and forceful response to it were shaped by many things, of which his own personal experiences with Negroes was not the least. The reciprocal relations between John Brown and the blacks began long before five of them accompanied him to Harper's Ferry and four of them to his doom. Brown's interest in colored people dated back to 1834, when he proposed to get at least one Negro boy or youth and bring him up as we do our own. Fifteen years later, Brown moved his family to North Elba, New York, expressly to settle among Negroes, most of them recipients of land grants from Garrett Smith. Brown attempted to assist his Negro neighbors in business matters, and he invited them to his weekly sessions in the study of the Bible. Richard Henry Dana, paying a farewell call to John Brown at North Elba on a morning in late June 1849, noted that at the breakfast table, eating with the family were the hired hands, including three Negroes. Brown's attempt to spur Negroes on led him in 1848 to contribute a lengthy article to The Ram's Horn, a short-lived weekly. Entitled Sambo's Mistakes, this article lampoons the habits of the Negro. Brown felt that the colored people were not doing all that they themselves could do in self-improvement. Hence, in Sambo's Mistakes, he makes his points by posing as a Negro who is offering to his fellows the benefit of his experience in life. A typical passage reads as follows. Another error of my riper years has been that when any meeting of colored people has been called in order to consider any important matter of general interest, I have been so eager to display my spouting talents, and so tenacious of some trifling theory or other that I have adopted, that I have generally lost all sight of the business at hand, consumed the time disputing about things of no moment. AND THEREBY DEFEATED ENTIRELY MANY IMPORTANT MEASURES CALCULATED TO PROMOTE THE GENERAL WELFARE. BUT I AM HAPPY TO SAY I CAN SEE IN A MINUTE WHERE I MISSED IT. ANOTHER SMALL ERROR OF MY LIFE, FOR I NEVER COMMITTED GREAT BLUNDERS, HAS BEEN THAT I NEVER WOULD, FOR THE SAKE OF UNION IN THE FURTHERANCE OF THE MOST VITAL INTERESTS OF OUR RACE, YIELD ANY MINOR POINT OF DIFFERENCE. In this way, I have always had to act with but a few, or more frequently alone, and could accomplish nothing worth living for. But I have one comfort. I can see any minute where I missed it. If few men knew the Negro's shortcomings as perceptively as Brown, there were even fewer who were as distressed by color prejudice as he. One of his followers relates that while walking in Boston in April 1857, Brown was greatly annoyed at the rude language addressed to a colored girl, language of the type, Brown said, that would not have been directed to a white girl. Entering the Massasoit house in Chicago for breakfast on April 25, 1858, Brown was told that the Negro member of his party, Richard Richardson, a fugitive slave, could not be served. Brown marched out, although not before subjecting the proprietor to a little bit of terse logic. Aside from his equalitarian principles, Brown was interested in the welfare of the colored people because he had something for them to do. His all-consuming passion was the abolition of slavery, an end which he proposed to accomplish by enlisting a semi-militaristic group of followers ready for direct action. Brown's role for the Negro was implicit in an organization he formed in January 1851 at Springfield, Massachusetts the United States League of Gileadites. Formed to resist the fugitive slave law, the Gileadites pledged themselves to go armed and to shoot to kill, a pattern of conduct that would characterize Brown's later operations in Kansas and at Harper's Ferry. The 44 colored men and women who signed the agreement apparently had little call for action. Moreover, in March 1851, Brown, the original man in motion, left for Ohio. Brown was interested in recruiting Negro leaders and the black rank and file. Prominent figures sought out by Brown included Frederick Douglass, Martin R. Delaney, Stephen Smith, Jermaine W. Loguen, Henry Highland Garnett, William Still, and Charles H. Langston. His contacts with Douglass, whom he desperately wished to win over, Stretched over a longer time span and were more numerous than with any other Negro leader. Brown's acquaintance with Douglas went back to the spring of 1848, when the latter, at Brown's request, visited him at Springfield. In the spring of 1858, Brown paid two visits to the Douglas home in Rochester, New York, one of them extending over a period of two weeks. While a guest of Douglas, Brown met a fugitive slave, Shields Green, who would accompany him to Harper's Ferry. Shortly before Brown got ready to make his raid into Virginia, he arranged to meet Douglas at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, some 20 miles from the site of the planned foray. Douglas brought a letter for Brown from Mrs. J. N. Gloucester, a Brooklyn woman of means, with $25 enclosed. Douglas was accompanied by Shields Green, the two of them being led to Brown's hideout by Harry Watson, a Negro underground railroad operator at Chambersburg. For three days, Brown tried to persuade Douglas to join the expedition. Douglas steadfastly refused, discretion having formed his decision. Not a single other Negro leader would join Brown, all of them considering his venture imprudent. On May 17, 1859, Brown wrote to Loguen, I will just whisper in your private ear that I have no doubt you will soon have a call from God to minister at a different location. Despite the language, the Negro clergyman remained unconvinced. Loguen, like other Negroes, admired Brown for his anti-slavery exploits in Kansas and his daring excursion into Missouri in which he had freed 11 slaves by a show of force. However, as much as they revered Brown for his courage, Negro leaders thought that the proposed seizure of Harper's Ferry was inordinately risky, if not foolhardy. Brown's most ambitious attempt to enlist the Negro rank and file was the holding of a convention at Chatham, Ontario, in early May 1858. Brown's own party of twelve was present, as were thirty-four Negroes. These included the presiding officer, a Negro clergyman, William C. Monroe, the poet, James Madison Bell, and Martin R. Delaney, the last-named then-practicing medicine at Chatham, having come at the urgent personal invitation of Brown himself. The chief work of the convention was the adoption of a provisional constitution of the United States, a document which avowed the Declaration of Independence and condemned slavery. The Chatham Convention lacked follow-up. With Brown gone and with no action of any kind forthcoming for nearly seventeen months, the enthusiasm of the Chatham signers abated, never to be rekindled. But at Chatham, Brown for the first time had met Harriet Tubman. He had thought of her as the shepherd of the slaves that he would shake loose. Brown's tete-a-tete with Harriet confirmed his already high opinion of her. But neither she nor Delaney would be with him at Harper's Ferry. Brown, however, had not left Chatham empty handed. A young printer's devil, Osborne Perry Anderson, had been impressed by the convention and by its convener. He would be the only black survivor of Harper's Ferry. By the autumn of eighteen fifty nine, Brown was ready to seize the government arsenal at Harper's Ferry a prelude to establishing a stronghold in the mountains and thus liberating the slaves on a mounting scale of operations. Late in the night of October 16th, Brown moved into the town, leaving three of his party at the Kennedy Farm, the base of operations in Maryland. Marching into the darkened Harper's Ferry behind Brown were eighteen followers, five of them Negroes, Osborne Perry Anderson, Shields Green, "'Dangerfield Newby, like Green, an escaped slave, "'and two recruits from Oberlin, Ohio, "'John A. Copeland, Jr., and Lewis S. Leary, his uncle. "'Copeland, a former student in the preparatory department "'at Oberlin College and the most articulate of the five, "'had joined Brown to assist in giving that freedom "'to at least a few of my poor and enslaved brethren "'who have been most foully and unjustly deprived of their liberty.' John Brown was hardly a battlefield tactician. Lacking a clear and definite plan of campaign, his raid was quickly suppressed. The first of the five fatalities inflicted by Brown's men was on a free Negro, Haywood Shepherd, baggage master of the train depot, a contretemps which seemed to set the stage for a military fiasco. Ten of Brown's band were killed, Newby first and Leary later. Copeland and Green were among the seven who were captured, and Anderson was among the five who escaped. Brown and his captured followers were imprisoned in Charleston. Brown was tried first, and on October 31st, the jury returned with a verdict of guilty. Two days later, the judge pronounced a sentence of death by hanging. During the 30-day interval between the sentence and the execution, Brown bore himself with fortitude and serenity. Brown's inner peace was not shared by his countrymen, particularly those in the North. For his act, however rash and wrong headed, had dramatized the issue of slavery, forcing neutrals to abandon their fence sitting posture and giving to the abolitionists a martyr figure of unprecedented proportions. Charles H. Langston, like half a dozen white abolitionists, felt the necessity of issuing a card of denial stating that he had had no hand in the Harper's Ferry affair. "'But what shall I deny?' added Langston. "'I cannot deny that I feel the very deepest sympathy with the immortal John Brown in his heroic and daring effort to free the slaves.' Langston's sentiment of sympathy and esteem mirrored the reaction of the overwhelming majority of black Americans." During Brown's month in jail, innumerable prayer and sympathy meetings were held throughout the North. None were more fervent than those called by Negroes. The weekly Anglo-African for November 5th carried a guest editorial by James W.C. Pennington entitled Pray for John Brown. Such advice was hardly needed. On the day after Brown was sentenced, a group of Providence Negroes meeting at the Zion Church expressed their full sympathy for Captain John Brown. Despite their abhorrence to bloodshed and civil war, they referred to Brown as hero, philanthropist, and unflinching champion of liberty, and pledged themselves to send up their prayers to Almighty God on his behalf. A group of Chicago Negroes, meeting later that month, drafted a letter to Brown assuring him of their deep sympathy and their intention to contribute material aid to his family. How could we be so ungrateful as to do less for one who has suffered, bled, and now ready to die for the cause? At the Siloam Presbyterian Church in Brooklyn, a prayer meeting cutting across denominational lines was led by the pastor, A. N. Freeman, assisted by fellow clergymen Henry Highland Garnett, James N. Gloucester, and Amos G. Beeman. Colored women sent letters of esteem to the jailed brown. A group of Brooklyn matrons wrote that they would ever hold him in their remembrance, considering him a model of true patriotism, because he sacrificed everything for his country's sake. From Kendallville, Indiana... Francis Ellen Watkins sent a letter on behalf of the slave women, an admixture of Christian faith in the future and symbolic references to the past. You have rocked the bloody Bastille, and the hemlock is distilled with victory when it is pressed to the lips of Socrates. A group of women from New York, Brooklyn, and Williamsburg sent Mrs. Brown a letter on November 23rd. Its content summarized in the lines, FEAR NOT, BELOVED SISTER, TRUST IN THE GOD OF JACOB. AS JOHN BROWN STEPPED FROM THE JAIL ON THE LAST MORNING OF HIS LIFE, NO LITTLE SLAVE CHILD WAS HELD UP FOR THE venison OF HIS LIPS, FOR NONE BUT SOLDIERS WERE NEAR, AND THE STREET WAS FULL OF MARKING MEN. HOWEVER, AS BROWN WAS LED TO THE GALLOWS, A SLAVE WOMAN SAID, GOD BLESS YOU, OLD MAN, IF I COULD HELP YOU, I WOULD. BROWN WENT TO HIS DEATH WITH DIGNITY and the day concluded, wrote one who was present, with the calm and quiet of a New England Sabbath. If December 2nd, 1859, was also a quiet day in abolitionist circles, it was due to the nature of its observance. Throughout the North, reformers held prayer meetings or meetings with a religious orientation. At Boston, where all Negro businesses were closed, the colored people, wearing armbands of black crepe, held three prayer meetings, morning, afternoon, and night, at Leonard Grimes's Twelfth Baptist Church. Many persons stayed from one meeting to the next, not needing to go out for meals on a day of widespread fasting. One of these all-day sojourners was Lydia Maria Child, who had journeyed from Wayland, fifteen miles away, to spend the solemn day with Negroes. She therefore had to miss the much larger meeting at Tremont Temple, arranged by the white abolitionists, but with Negroes attending in large numbers, and with J. Sella Martin as one of the featured speakers. But perhaps it was just as well that Mrs. Childs did not go to the crowded temple, for thousands were turned away. Martyr Day, as some black abolitionists called it, was appropriately observed by New York Negroes at a meeting at Shiloh Church beginning at ten in the morning and with a period of silent prayer at noon. Of the six clergymen on the program, William Goodell, the only white speaker, differed from two of his colleagues on one point. When James N. Foster endorsed John Brown's course, Goodell dissented on the grounds that the weapons of the abolitionists were moral and religious, rather than carnal. Sampson White took issue, informing Goodell that George Washington, whom Americans revered, had not taken the position that our weapons are not carnal when he led the new nation in its struggle against English oppression. Washington and the Americans of his day had acted on the premise that resistance to tyrants was obedience to God. White, somewhat carried away, said that he had an arm which he felt duty-bound to use when his God-given rights were invaded. Philadelphia Negroes, like those in Boston, observed Martyr Day by closing down their businesses. Public prayer meetings were held at two churches, Shiloh and Union Baptist, hundreds of colored men and women went to National Hall to hear Robert Purvis and white William Furness. Pittsburgh's black community held a meeting addressed by native son George Vachon. At Detroit, the colored people gathered at the Second Baptist Church, where they passed a resolution vowing to venerate Brown's character, regarding him as our temporal leader whose name will never die. On Martyr Day at Cleveland, the 2,000 who managed to get into crowded Melodian Hall included almost as many whites as blacks, with almost as many equally mixed milling around outside, unable to get in. Judges and members of the state legislature were among the platform guests flanking the presiding officer, Charles H. Langston. The walls were draped in black, and the stage was hung with large-lettered framed quotations from John Brown's writings and conversations. Negroes in lesser towns throughout the North From Worcester, Massachusetts to Galesburg, Ohio, likewise paused on December 2, 1859, to honor John Brown on the day of his death. Negroes felt that they had an especial obligation to assist in the efforts to give financial aid to John Brown's widow. Their donations would not be large, but they would represent a more widespread giving than their modest totals might indicate. The John Brown Relief Fund of New Haven raised $13 for Mary Brown. Philadelphia Negroes sent her $150, and the recently formed John Brown Liberty League of Detroit donated $25. Some Negroes, such as Frances Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgement were brief, but gracious and inspirational. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles Concluded Cassette 7, Side 2 Some Negroes, such as Frances Ellen Watkins, sent personal contributions. Mrs. Brown's letters of acknowledgement were brief, but gracious and inspirational. The sympathy that Negroes felt for Mrs. Brown extended to Mrs. Mary Leary, widow of Louis S. Leary. The wife and seven children of the other Negro who fell at Harper's Ferry, Dangerfield Newby, were in slavery, and neither of the two Negroes who were hanged, John A. Copeland, or Shields Green, was married. Boston Negroes raised $40 for Mrs. Leary and her child, and $10 to go toward erecting a monument to the memory of the heroes of Harper's Ferry. The colored women in Brooklyn and New York sent Mrs. Leary a total of $140, ringing from her the reply that her loss had been great, but she hoped that her husband and his associates had not died in vain in their attack on that great evil, American slavery. Negroes did not wait for history to pass the verdict on John Brown. He was the greatest man of the 19th century, ran a resolution adopted by a group of New Bedford Negroes two days after he mounted the scaffold. This evaluation was echoed by Frederick Douglass in a letter to Brown's associate, James Redpath, on June 29, 1860. Brown's portrait graced the wall of the Purvis dining room at Byberry, Pennsylvania. In Troy, New York, the black children pooled their pennies so that they might buy a picture of him for their school. A Negro weekly compared him with Nat Turner, discovering that both were idealistic, Bible-nurtured, tenacious of purpose, swayed by spiritual impulses, and calm and heroic in prison. The evaluation of Brown by Negroes was uncritical, since he perhaps was worth more for hanging than anything else. But as prophets, Negroes did better. For with the ensuing rapid current of national events, Brown's fate became a rallying cry and his name a legend. It is true, wrote John A. Copeland, as he sat in the jail awaiting the hangman's noose, that the outbreak at Harper's Ferry did not give immediate freedom to the slave, but it was the prelude to that event. On the eve of the Civil War, the abolitionists lost John Brown, but they regained Charles Sumner. The Massachusetts senator had been the victim of a physical assault, which, like the John Brown raid, bespoke the mounting violence of the times. On May 22, 1856, As Sumner sat reading his mail in the nearly empty Senate chamber, a congressman from South Carolina, Preston S. Brooks, belabored him on the head with a heavy cane. Brooks had bitterly resented a verbal attack which Sumner had made two days earlier against his uncle, Senator Andrew Pickens Butler, in a Senate speech which at once became famous under the title, The Crime Against Kansas. Brooks' cane felled Sumner, bleeding and unconscious, to the floor. Reformers throughout the North were shocked. Negroes throughout the North holding protest meetings. By mid-1860, Sumner now become by martyrdom a truly important figure, was ready once more to answer the roll call. On June 4th, after an absence of nearly 50 months from the Senate chamber, he arose to deliver a speech. He took the floor at ten minutes past twelve and spoke until a little after four. Sumner's was the eloquence of industry rather than the eloquence of inspiration, wrote one of his Negro admirers, Archibald H. Grimke. He requires space, and he requires time. Doubtless, on this occasion, Sumner felt that his subject, the barbarism of slavery, warranted extended treatment. The essence of the address, however, may be briefly stated. Slavery was a upas tree with all its gigantic poison. In the esteem of black Americans, Sumner already was second to none in national politics. For this maiden effort on his return to the Senate, Negro leaders showered him with a profusion of epistolary plaudits. From Robert Morris, who had worked with him in 1849 on the separate schools issue in Boston, came a letter of thanks in behalf of the colored young men of Boston. Another lawyer, John S. Rock, later to be admitted on motion of Sumner to the bar of the United States Supreme Court, sent word, Your immortal speech has sent a thrill of joy to all lovers of freedom everywhere. A colored citizen of New Bedford, who had, upon his own testimony, faithfully devoted more than twenty years of his brief life to the elevation of his race, assured the senator that the gratitude of the colored people was incalculable. However phrased, all of the letters expressed complete approval. Ebenezer D. Bassett, principal of the Institute for Colored Youth at Philadelphia, and later to become the first Negro to represent the United States at Port-au-Prince, Haiti, informed Sumner that the speech was unequaled by anything in the oratory of modern times. Bassett, as one with a reputation as a classical scholar, felt emboldened to place Sumner's effort side by side with the matchless D Corona of Demosthenes. From Philadelphia also came word from William Still, "'You have effectually laid the axe at the root of the tree.'" At nearby Byberry, Robert Purvis had posted a note. Sumner's speech had stirred within him the deepest emotions. H.O. Wagoner, venturing to speak in the name or in the behalf of the seven or eight thousand colored people of the state of Illinois, return heartfelt thanks for the ever-memorable services which you have just rendered in the Senate of the United States to the cause of my enslaved and downtrodden fellow countrymen. Could the poor slave, continued Waggoner, know the substance of that speech and the circumstances under which it was given in the very face of the slave power? I say could the slaves be made to comprehend fully all this, it would thrill their very souls with emotions of joy unspeakable. The right word has been uttered, intoned Frederick Douglass. You spoke to the Senate and the nation, but you have a nobler and a mightier audience. The civilized world will hear you and rejoice at the tremendous exposure of meanness, brutality, blood-guiltiness, hell-black iniquity, and barbarism of American slavery. Turning it the most anti-slavery speech ever made in the Senate Hall of the United States, Douglass Monthly carried it in full. Francis Allen Watkins caught the mood, turning out some lines whose spirit may be sampled from the opening and closing stanzas. Thank God that thou hast spoken words earnest, true, and brave. The lightning of thy lips has smote the fetters of the slave. Thy words were not soft echoes, thy tones no siren song. They fell as battle axes upon our giant wrong. Although fulsomely praised by Negroes, Sumner's speech drew bitter comments in the North, where the prevailing sentiment was far less hostile toward slavery than his. Less than five months after the address, however, Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency, and a rapprochement between the sections became all but impossible. Less than seven weeks after the Republican victory, South Carolina officially dissolved its union with the other states of North America, seeking to convince the South that her institutions, particularly slavery, were not endangered, conciliators in both houses of Congress tried to find a pacifying formula. Their efforts provoked a heated public discussion, which in turn made for an increased hostility toward the colored man, who was held to be the source of all discord. The everlasting Negro is the rock upon which the ship of state must split, ran an angry, widely reprinted editorial in a Providence Daily. Will the people stand for this much longer? Will they make the Negro their god? The possibility of a rapprochement between the North and the South dismayed the Negro. All compromises now are as new wine to old bottles, new cloth to old garments, editorialized Douglas monthly. To attempt them as a means of peace between freedom and slavery is as to attempt to reverse irreversible law. Negro leaders were apprehensive lest the road to sectional reconciliation become the last resting ground for freedom. But such fears of a sell-out solution by the North or any kind of peaceful settlement proved premature. Six weeks after Lincoln took office, Fort Sumter was fired upon, compromise measures like the Union itself having proved unable to cope with slavery. Our national sin has found us out, ran an editorial in Douglas Monthly for May 1861. In this Old Testament sense, war had indeed come as sort of an atonement for a fall from grace, an act of redemption, no matter how untoward its expression. But in a sense less retributive and more peculiarly American, the Civil War was a phase of the continual striving for the goals for which this country had been conceived the downfall of slavery would thus bring additional strength for the tasks ahead. Viewed in this light, the abolitionist crusade itself was but a continuing phase of the revolution of 1776, an attempt to put into practice the doctrine of man's essential equality. We have good cause to be grateful to the slave for the benefit we have received to ourselves in working for him, wrote Abby Kelly. In striving to strike his chains off, we found most surely that we were manacled ourselves. Miss Kelly's sentiment bespoke a largeness of mind and of spirit. But, written in 1838, it did not fully encompass the role of the black American in the abolitionist crusade. More than an unhappy pawn, he had known that he must work to forge his own freedom. And, to this task, he had brought special skills. The struggle to make man free was a grim business, but he was accustomed to grim businesses. The struggle to make men free might entail armed resistance, but he was crisis-oriented from birth. To the extent that America had a revolutionary tradition, he was its protagonist no less than its symbol. This concludes the reading of Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles.
1: Okay, Uh, we're going to have to end it right there. I want to thank my guests, professors Linda Mizell and Jane Libby. For being our guest tonight here on the Gifts of Freedom, also thank like
2: to you both have enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank yeah. you very much. Also, I want to thank our producer Leslie Gist, G-I-S-T, the Gist of Freedom. You guys were a great team. I
0: really appreciate
2: Thank you, and and a pleasure virtually meeting you, Dr.
0: Libby. Oh yeah, uh, no no PhD. <laughs> All right, just a BA in African American Studies. I well, I was supposed to study state too. <laughs> oh right. gosh. It's a so right. Good nice talk to you. Thanks. Thank you. Mm. Take care. You too. Both of you. Bye bye. Bye bye.